0: You're listening to Brave New Space. I'm Robert. I'm Keegan. And we're going to share with you all things new space and beyond. Why we started this podcast. Brave New Space is about sharing insights and perspectives on the business and commerce of all things space to global investors and entrepreneurs. And we want to encourage more investors, entrepreneurs, and policymakers to consider participating in this space renaissance. So,
1: Robert, we've got quite a bit that's been going on in the space industry right now. I heard StratoLaunch is back in business. Yeah, it sounds like StratoLaunch is back in business, though I still stand in a position where I'm not entirely
0: sure what their business model is supposed to be.
1: It sounds like Virgin Orbital is every day going more and
0: more their own way. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, it sounds like Virgin might have been the part of the acquiring party. But how many of these things are they going to build? Are they, you know, I mean, if it's, it's still, you know, if you damage the aircraft, it means that your infrastructure is not very resilient. I mean, right?
1: Yeah. I, I like to always say, like, they're going to build just like one so they can give the Smithsonian something to rival the McMinnville Air and Space Museum.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that That might be true. And there's that. Uh, Spire might have an IPO, or they're outlining their IPO. That would be good, probably good indicator for a a non-celebrity uh focused new space company. Yeah, and it's
1: a it's a big deal for the industry because it's it's probably the most significant exit we've seen for the new space industry. I'm really struggling to think of something that is akin to this in terms of the magnitude of the kind of exit that they're looking at. Robert, is there anything that you can think of from the new space industry prior to this that was an exit of this size? Well, there was the um,
0: Earth Observation Company out of Colorado, I think, that went public and their, their name is escaping me, but I think that they had gone, but they were using large sat I mean they were using large satellites. I don't think there is yet any company that had a sole focus of using smaller satellites that has gone from being l- literally a private startup to uh, to a potential IPO. Yeah, planet never really went in that direction. it's uh, which is surprising, I
1: mean, to be honest, given the level of success they've enjoyed. But uh, yeah, this is pretty significant for the industry and not just for it being an arbitrary investment milestone, but it shows a greater maturation of the new space industry. It shows that the industry has reached a point where it is probably more durable than it has been in previous eras. I mean, pretty much if you know, there was a flicker from an administration on what their budgets were going to be, or if there was a any kind of recession beforehand, you'd see a lot of the new space industry just get wiped out overnight, more so than, you know, pretty much any other sections of the economy. And if we're seeing this normalization of the industry, it, it is a really good sign for its resilience going forward.
0: Yeah, certainly. And then shifting towards a well-known company SpaceX. I guess this weekend we have as you indicated with me yesterday, Elon's sharing, I guess this weekend his annual Starlink update. Yep,
1: well, the annual BFR update. Yep, this is uh this will be concept video number 3 or 4 depending on who you talk to. So, yeah, a lot's changed from a technical perspective. More importantly, It's been interesting watching Elon's tweets because as time has gone on with the BFR, the things he has to explain about design changes sound more begrudging. Like it's more along the lines of him acquiescing to what his engineers probably were telling him for a while. But that's not a bad thing by any means. That means that they're focusing on getting something that is able to get out the door, doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles. And can be a reliable product rather than something that is really trying to showcase a whole lot of really clever technological innovations. But this is going to be significant because they actually have a product now uh, to demonstrate, not just not just more concept art. Now, now obviously SpaceX has had a product in the form of the Falcon series for a while now, but this will be the first time that the BFR will be at least in a prototype stage that they can demonstrate.
0: Yeah, and maybe 2020 will be the year for private manned space given that several of the suborbital companies might actually be flying. I know this is like almost a uh, 10 plus year running joke, but it looks like Virgin Galactic might actually be flying. And Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin might be taking uh, paying passengers. And I think they indicated this past week that they needed on their own three more test flights before they're comfortable having people on board. Right. And, you know,
1: anytime we talk about Blue Origin, we really have to put a big asterisk next to it because Blue Origin and SpaceX could not be more different in terms of how they conduct their PR. Because pretty much everything about SpaceX these days, especially when it concerns the BFR, I mean, you can pretty much just go online and Google what, you know, the thing looks like from day to day because they're building it out in the open in Boca Chica. But when you talk about Blue, you have to remember just how secretive they run everything. So that's, you know, anything we hear about them is done almost entirely from the rumor mill. Whereas SpaceX, you know, couldn't keep a secret about BFR if they wanted to from the way they're building it right now. So we can take, you know, uh, Blue Origin at their word, but that's about
0: all we have to go on, really. And those initial flights will be suborbital. But shifting back over to SpaceX, 2000 might be the year when they're going to start taking some commercial crew to the space station. So so you would see potentially both suborbital and orbital human flights, which would be uh, uh, another, a a large, definitely significant milestone.
1: It really is going to be a game changer of a year, if all goes well, because you're absolutely right. We've got suborbital hops coming from Blue Origin. And again, we know very little of what's going on inside them from the rumor mill. We know that Bezos's team has really got the best and brightest working for them. So they might be further along than we know, but putting them aside for now, What SpaceX is about to do in terms of this rendezvous to the ISS is huge because it finally gives the United States the freedom to to operate its own space fleet again, rather than having to rely on the Russians and, to a lesser extent, the European Space Agency for their unmanned cargo delivery systems. So this is going to be a big year. And this is before we get into the fact that BFR, from what SpaceX has been saying relatively consistently for a little while now, should be attempting some kind of a test flight in October possibly even a suborbital flight by the end of the year. That's the most up-to-date information I have. It could have changed inside of the last hour, for all we know. But uh, this is going to be a really significant year going into 2020. And we haven't even gotten into discussing what's happening with Starlink.
0: Exactly. But in regards to these milestones in human flight, we'll then we get a lot of, we'll start developing best practices and... And learning what doesn't work with everything on the, could be regulatory side, how you get your paying flight participants in terms of their health checks. I think we're going to learn a whole lot. I mean, we're going to probably generate new data about how do just non-professional space astronauts fare in space, even if it's just for relatively short durations. And then if SpaceX picks up some of the commercial crew flight as, in, as intended and contracted with NASA will Russia shift back over to taking more space tourists or be taking more ESA astronauts or Russian cosmonauts? So I'll be kind of interested to see what how Russia adapts with SpaceX's entry into
1: the man market. And this is a big can of worms that we haven't had to deal with for a while now. So it's been said for a long time that Russia is talking seriously about more or less decoupling the Russian segment of the International Space Station to serve as the platform for what I suppose we could call MIR-2. For a long time, those threats have not been taken particularly seriously, partly because the United States has essentially... Russia has launched a lot of those components, but the United States has paid for 80% of the development of the ISS and is kind and is functionally the main source of revenue for the Russian space agency. So, But if Russia is put in a position where that source of revenue is now being denied from the fact that they're from not only the embargo on RD-180 uh, engines for the Atlas series of rockets, but also from the United States simply not needing to fly on the Soyuz system anymore, it's entirely possible they might might make good on those threats. What's going to be interesting to watch is, is if the United States now has an alternative launch system to be able to get its astronauts into orbit, there's no reason why the Europeans couldn't also fly out of that as well. I mean, really, what's stopping ESA from going to SpaceX and saying, like, yes, we'd like to station three dragons and uh, accompanying launch vehicles down in French Guiana for the foreseeable future to fly out of the airplane co- Cosmodrome instead of having to go all the way to Baikonur? I mean, from a purely logistical perspective, what, sp- what an American-based launch provider offers as a means of disrupting Russia's, eh, call it chokehold,
0: really, on, on launch services really really changes the whole game and and then a, another unknown factor would be China China my guess probably has will f- fulfill its own launch for manned domestically and and it's probably got a deep pipeline since they are planning on developing or have plans on developing their own space station but I'm sure the subject will get broached why not take a few uh foreign astronauts along for the ride absolutely for
1: fee <laughs> exactly it's It's going to be interesting watching the Chinese because their whole attempt at spaceflight has been to become cost competitive via mass production rather than focusing entirely on reusability like uh, SpaceX and Blue have been focusing on. Now, that's not to say that they might not eventually include some degree of that, but let's look at it purely from the perspective of how their business model, if you can call it that, is set up right now. I think it's entirely possible the Chinese might offer to take a foreign astronaut. My big question is from where? And why would they necessarily want to go if SpaceX is still going to be cost competitive and is probably going to be the leader in terms of safety compared to the Chinese for the foreseeable future? China is always an interesting country to talk about in terms of space because you're never entirely sure with any of their programs, space or otherwise, just how committed they actually are to anything more than a propaganda project. So I would be interested to see on what the Chinese are going to do in terms of trying to maybe upstage SpaceX or more importantly, to make the Russians look bad, but... I'm not entirely sure
0: if those programs would have really any staying power to them. Although they do have, you know, thousands of people working on their various programs, and they tend to design their programs around dual use, meaning for both civilian slash commercial and military applications. So I would say it's a to be determined when it comes to China, for my opinion. Absolutely. It'll be interesting to see how they move forward. It's, It's possible
1: that the Australians might want to, you know, it might be, let's back this up a little bit. One uh, fun thought with China is they might be able to offer some lesser powers, smaller countries that don't have nearly the kind of budget as even American private corporations do a lot of the time, the chance to be able to to essentially jumpstart small space programs. Now, I'm not talking, you know, like I'm not saying like a country like Brunei is going to wake up tomorrow and have themselves a functioning space program. But Kenya has a space program that has been trying to get off the ground for a little while now. They have the advantage of being equatorially based and really only have to flying over the southern tip of Somalia if they want to be able to get into space I'm from an equatorial launch over the ocean. So they can launch prograde from an equatorial position. You have the Indonesian space program, which doesn't really get a lot of press. It's possible Dubai might even look into it. They've talked about space tourism for a while now. Singapore, Singapore, of course. Singapore though has the money to throw around, so it's yeah. They if they go they if they go after Chinese rockets. It's also worth remembering that Singapore has kind of lives on a knife's edge. They have to kind of play nice with everybody, especially the big power in their region. So if they buy Chinese rockets, it will not necessarily because they're looking for the savings. It will be because they want to maintain good relations with China. And from an infrastructure perspective, it's just going to be easier to get rockets shipped from Beijing than it is all the way across the Pacific from, you know, Los Angeles or Boca Chica.
0: Yes. And then uh, looking back at that, you had, you had hinted to Starlink. So it seems that the groups like SpaceX and Blue Origin recognize that carrying payload to space for other customers is still a relatively limited market if you're talking about large communication satellites, but they've recognized that if they can help connect the rest of the world with internet services, that's actually a quite a nice potential revenue stream for them and that's why you have you've got OneWeb, you have SpaceX with Starlink and Blue Origin's Kuiper satellite internet project.
1: And the question remains and this is something we could get into much deeper later on uh, in a different episode, but this Starlink uh, large constellation approach that these companies are proceeding to go after opens another possibility. So we've seen in very rare cases a transition away from the rideshare to orbit model for a small sat into launching these very large constellations on single launches. The most recent was one that was launched out of India in 2018 that I can remember, which was around 150 satellites going up in one go as part of a single constellation. And I believe it's about 60 satellites for Starlink per launch that SpaceX is currently operating under. In fact, they're saying they want to run something like, I think it was like two launches a month in 2020. So they're scaling this up radically. And this, from a business perspective, seems to be a play to try to make these companies, these companies are trying to make a play to establish themselves as the leaders in large constellation launches. And partly to do that for their own services, but also to build up the capacity and more importantly than anything else, the safety and reliability experience from multiple large launches to be able to reach all these new markets. So, I think there's more than one angle we can look at this for Starlink. You know, the idea of SpaceX becoming an ISP is on its is on its own very provocative. But I think this is also something we have to consider in the race to become the dominant force in large constellation launches for small sat.
0: And they will have to not only prove that they can get them there in orbit, which SpaceX has definitely demonstrated, but that they will be able to safely operate these satellites. You know, there's been some discussion around potential debris issues and how do you mitigate that? Can you successfully coordinate the communications that will be necessary to link all the various satellites. And then on the ground, having these thousands of satellites will probably create the need for many more ground stations around the world. I recently saw an interesting presentation regarding uh, some technology that you might want to start putting on spacecraft so that you could effectively try to reduce the amount of ground stations necessary. But But it seems like according to the current Starlink and the other competitive plans, Large numbers of ground stations are probably going to be required around the world since I think all of these constellations are still effectively using uh, radio waves. Absolutely. And uh, on top of the
1: need, there's a more important element to the need to establish all those new ground stations and more importantly, satellite tracking platforms. And that's to de-risk the now, the, the now increasing risk of collision between satellites. I mean, SpaceX and the ESA had a little scare this year uh, where two of their birds nearly collided into one another. And so there is going to be a lot of infrastructure that are going to have to prop up. But I want to come back to something you mentioned earlier in the call that I think is really interesting to dive into. I mean, it's uh, though it might not sound that much to some of our listeners at first, and that is going to be the changes we're going to see in regulatory uh, agencies for space. So these collision risks and the simple fact that there's just going to be a ridiculous number of satellites being put into orbit for the foreseeable future is really going to put a strain on agencies like the FAA for their long-term ability to qualify and monitor and regulate all these new networks. So, Robert, what do you see as kind of being the most interesting trend we could that could come out of this future
0: large satellite network uh, that we're heading in the direction of from a regulatory perspective? Well, I think the agencies are still grappling, um, dealing with being undermanned, promised new resources. But I think it's going to be a mixture of the case where, where where the private sector and technology is outpacing policy and regulatory regimes. And it says hope, but but there's really no evidence behind this just yet that we might start seeing um, new software platforms come into play to try to actually help and augment both the kind of the traffic control, as well as the application for these satellites to it, it kind of expedite the process of them getting through. Because one of the hurdles for a lesser funded small sat or new space company is complying with licensing regime, which is expensive. Getting, mm-hmm. getting your spectrum, getting your licensing, you can spend hundreds of thousands, you could spend greater than a million dollars just in the... Uh, uh, you know, the the licensing regime regarding you know licensing for your spacecraft. And then you have your separately, you know, what spectrum you're operating on. And government could definitely improve efficiency and processes, but I think it's going to not just be a matter of hiring more, you know, having more heads, but actually trying to integrate new technology to streamline both the intake, the application. And the management and coordination of these uh, different operating entities or intending to operate entities.
1: And it's worth noting, this is definitely going to be on both sides of the table, both in terms of private sector services being developed to make it easier for satellites to manage themselves, essentially, and the private sector to be able to operate with a greater degree of independence. But a lot of these new changes to software management are definitely going to have to come to the regulatory agencies as well. The big question mark, though, is going to be how these regulations are going to be able to change and adapt and allow these more independent satellite as a service systems, that you know, new software platforms to comply with the needs of the military, because there's more than a few birds up there that are not going to want to necessarily communicate with a piece of software developed in Silicon Valley uh, entirely for private sector use. And that's going to be something that, uh, if they do allow that, is going to require its whole another ball of wick in terms of regulatory reform. So it's going to be interesting to see how DOD considerations have to now play into these new regulatory uh, paradigms. There's also the fact that DoD is getting in on uh, smallsat as well. There is the DARPA challenge currently focusing on, you know, smallsat payloads to launch anywhere, anytime. There was a study put out by the Defense Department back in 2017, I believe, talking about block three GPS satellite networks, which we're going to be relying more on smallsat constellations. And this is just what's already being discussed in the open. As this technology becomes... Really, the way, not ju- just the option. We're going to see a lot of work needing to be done to adapt regulatory agencies
0: to be able to deal with with this new world. Exactly. You sort of have, um, you know, Silicon Valley, which might have the approach being a little more transparent, walled gardens, and DoD, which is very opaque, and the potential overlap or collision between the various interests there there's probably going to be a few mistakes made along the way to to kind of figure out and course correct what's the best way to kind of navigate this and i'm sure there are people within uh, dod that are both excited and scared shitless over <laughs> when they hear about you know thousands of satellites being launched uh, because oh, yeah. because let's let's all remember that for our audience effectively anything in space could be a weapon absolutely whether it's a lost screw or, or maybe not say a weapon, maybe I'll rephrase it and just it could be, you know, potentially uh, harmful to another spacecraft because of the velocity that these that everything is that you have up there. So that's why even when you have like an astronaut on a mood walk, if they drop something, you know, it's a big deal. Absolutely. And this
1: brings us back to a topic we'll, I'm sure we'll get into later, but uh, how these regulatory, how these regulatory agencies and the industry as a whole is going to deal with the fact that the more things you have flying up there, the higher risk you have for space debris overall, we may very well, we've already seen just about every country with any kind of a space program and more than a few private sector entities have been looking into how to deal with debris cleanup. So this is something we'll definitely have to come back to later.
0: Keegan, did I make a, a microgravity grammar slip when I said drop? I guess you don't really drop things when you're in microgravity. I'll say if a a, a an astronaut on a spacewalk accidentally let go of something or lost control of, of, say, whether it was a spacecraft they were working on or a tool, that could then potentially harm, you know, another spacecraft. Right. I mean, low Earth orbit already is a shooting
1: gallery with the amount of just little, it doesn't even have to be something that's, you know, that falls, you know, off of an astronaut's grip. I mean a good sized paint ship put a pretty you know decent you know hole in the window of the space shuttle Atlantis back in the 90s so it didn't make its way all the way through but it pierced around halfway through what was I believe 3 inches of bulletproof glass so it doesn't take much to be able to create a new threat out there in space and then there's the new side of this equation which is that As more satellites are put into orbit, as more services are being provided, we continue down this path to where we are not just benefiting from space, but we are now truly dependent on it. And at that point, you now have to figure out how do we deal with the possibility of a risk from solar flares and other natural phenomenon from the sun that could potentially damage or disable large chunks of the civilian satellite
0: network. Yeah, that's, it's not an area that I have any experience regarding, but I certainly know that it exists that we could have that natural space weather events. And the forecasting of space weather is actually a real thing. And I know that there are organizations and companies out there that look at that. So keeping our satellite infrastructure in, uh, safe in operation is really a lot more important than most people here on the planet would realize. And this is a topic, uh, again, I feel like
1: so much of what we're doing right now is listing topics for later discussions. But we also have to consider the, possi- the fact that if space is indeed now becoming an economic necessity, not ju- just a nice thing, a nice to have, you also run the risk of bad actors wanting to be able to, to disable elements of that, that network to- for malicious intent. So this is something that has been experimented to one degree or another by, by pretty much any country with any kind of a space program between the Chinese destruction of one of their own satellites with an anti-satellite missile demonstration back, back, I believe this was, was this uh, 2015 was when that was, Robert?
0: It was 2007, Keegan. 2007. So yeah, it's been a while now. It says uh, it was January 11th, 2007. China conducted an anti-SAT missile test A Chinese weather satellite, the FY-1C polar satellite, it was a polar orbit satellite, was at an altitude of 865 kilometers, and it was destroyed with a kinetic kill vehicle traveling at eight kilometers per second. That's according to Wikipedia. And
1: that was the largest single increase in space debris from one single event. Now, that was a particularly sophisticated system, too. On top of that, you have the fact that the same targeting software that has now been very, very democratized, that was once extremely rare allows even simpler systems, like just ground-based optical lasers, to not necessarily destroy satellites, but at least blind them. The Iranians have been playing around with this for the last decade or so. And so it's now getting to a point to where the risk to, to satellites in orbit, civilian and military, is now comes with a greater economic risk than just a potential intelligence gathering or communications risk. So this is something the military got into way back in 2014 when they published the third offset strategy, which was talking about how space is no longer unassailable and needs to be addressed for greater security needs. But
0: this is something we're going to get into in a later episode. And I guess in summary, this um kind of this broad range of topics we're we describing today really paints a picture that space is not just a place. It's an ecosystem and it enables activity. In some ways, it can be a methodology, you know, it's 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 a way that countries can leverage their kind of strategic power and show dominance. And it's really interlinked with so many different disciplines. And so whether you're a policy buff, a tech buff, economics geek, you know, there are – you can go really deep in, in, on the space sector with any of these areas. And now that you've got essentially these commercial and commercially interested and in private startups that are that are now operating in this sector – It's just creating a whole new dynamic of which it's really exciting because there's many unknowns. So right now, space is approximately $300 billion global sector a year. And I contend that I think it will grow and can grow much larger over the coming decade if certain policies and, and other things are, are kind of enacted. And you know we want to paint a brush for investors and other strategics who might be scratching their head saying, you know, what's the angle? How can I potentially benefit from space? What do I need to be doing today? Even if I'm just tracking it and I'm not quite ready to invest today. All this and more you can learn on future episodes of Brave
1: New Space. So keep an eye out for us.
0: Hi, listener. My new book, Space is Open for Business, Is coming out soon, and I want you to get a sneak preview of it. Head on over to my website, robertjacobson.com, for a first look. Thank you for listening to Brave New Space. This is Robert. And Keegan. On the next episode of Brave New
1: Space, we'll be going over failures and how the industry has learned from them.